you're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we learn more about uh, the members of HIPAM, the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Work Group. They are University of Hawaii Health Economist Victoria Fan, math professors Monique Chiba and Tom Blamey, and epidemiologist Thomas Lee. We have talked with Lee before, uh, early in the pandemic, though he wasn't able to join us for our conversation this week. The group updated its forecast Monday based on information provided by the State Health Department and issued a sobering report. We start off by hearing from Victoria Fan, the chair of the volunteer work group. Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Work Group, or HIPEM as we call it, started in April of 2020. A group of data scientists, applied epidemiologists, mathematicians, biologists, and health professionals all got together saw the need for COVID forecasting and modeling in the state of Hawaii. And so our mission as a voluntary group has been to provide uh, timely information uh, about the pending forecast for COVID. And so our website, www.hypam.org, has a ongoing two-week forecast for the state of Hawaii. And it's, we believe, the best model for the state um, using all available local data and information, best available science, which is constantly evolving. And uh, we're really fortunate that Professor Monique Shiba, who is in the mathematics department, is working very, very hard and just incredibly with a team of students who develop, I think, the, the best-in-class model on COVID for the state. Over the course of a year and a half, we've used multiple different models by different researchers, but at this point, Professor Sheba's model, we believe, is the, is the best model. Professor Sheba, maybe you should just, you know, jump in here. The latest forecast, it's very sobering, and the numbers are a bit alarming, you know, knowing the rate of transmission, but talk about that. Yes, the forecast is alarming, but in epidemiological modeling, the forecast and predictions are meant to be defeated. That's really the purpose of doing the modeling. We forecast based on the fact that there will be no changes in the current condition, which usually does not happen, especially if you forecast a large number, individuals are going to adjust their behavior they're going to be more cautious. And therefore, the alarming forecast, it happens that they might not come true. That's uh, what we saw with the Delta surge the past August. We forecasted 3,000 numbers in early September, and that's where we were heading. And that was really a red flag and a warning. And that's what we're doing again. We're really waving a red flag that we are heading in the wrong direction and that we have to be very careful. I know it's the holiday and people don't want to hear that, but individual behavior needs to be be adjusted in order to avoid keeping on the surge that we see currently. Right. And you have forecast potentially up to, what, 4,000 cases by New Year's. And that's that number is, is a scary number. We hope you're not right. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I hope I'm not right neither. It's not been right or wrong. This is what's going to happen if nothing changes. And what I hope is that people are going to react and there'll be some adjustment in wearing masks, in, in limiting gathering, in taking the boosters. And therefore, that number can be smaller. There are a lot of uncertainties when we do epidemiological modeling. Here, we're missing a lot of data. We don't have information about vaccination, like the daily cases. We don't have information about the vaccination in the hospital. We don't know exactly the demographic that is affected right now and that is in the hospitals. We don't have access to those data. So the model can do only what it can. And there is a big cone of uncertainty when we project even only two weeks ahead. What does the state say when you have made these requests uh, for the data so that we can get a better model? I'll, I'll chime into this question. You know, I think the Department of Health has you know, informed us that they are working very hard to try to get this data, um, in particular the vaccination data as a percentage of the cases as well as the vaccinations and the hospitalizations. It seems that there is some of that data already present. What they are working on, I'm told, is a some, some type of automated data system so that it can be provided in a real-time manner. Um, of course, you'll want to talk to the Department of Health directly to get that confirmation, but even a point-in-time in estimate uh, numbers could be very valuable, even if they are slightly outdated. And I guess it is a bit of a head-scratcher because it seems like, gosh, if we can get good data and better modeling that our leaders can make better decisions about policy and, you know, whether we need to roll back on restrictions or or add more in. I I completely agree with that statement. You know, I think the role of HIPAM is 
pretty similar, I think, to the meteorologist and the weather reporters. Our job is to tell you what the weather is, and it's really up to people, everyday people, and the policymakers about how they may change uh, policies or change your everyday decisions. Um, but, but our intention of HIPEM is to provide a best forecast using all best available science and data. Uh, and Thomas, I don't know, as a mathematician, I mean, how are you looking at this, uh, this challenge? Yes, uh, I concur 100% with uh, Professor Sheba. Her and her team, the ACEs, have come up with a fantastic model, actually two models, got a benchmark model as well, I would say in line with uh, the gold standard from the University of Washington's Institute of Health Metrics. Data is messy in reality, and um, we didn't predict that we would have a pandemic like this, so we didn't really allocate resources for the Department of Health to, to really be up and, and running with this kind of level of data and challenge. So. They're doing the best they can. Maybe the mathematicians can help just a layperson out there when you do modeling. I mean, I don't know. Is this the kind of thing where you just, you know, throw data into a computer and you come up with a number? Uh, no, it, it would be nice, but that's not really how it works. So we use modeling. So we come up with either we use a big network where the nodes are the individuals, and then we try to model to understand how the interaction between the individual population whether they're related by work, et cetera. That uses a lot of computational power. There is another type of model that are more compartmental where you aggregate the population and then you try again to understand how they interact. The way you write your model and structure your model then impact the success of the prediction and the fit. So we have to understand epidemiological modeling is not just a question of data. It depends on people and people are very, very complex. And behavior can change very rapidly and unexpectedly. And this is why any type of forecasting is extremely delicate. We also have, for instance, the number of testing is going to impact the daily cases. And uh, so if the testing suddenly goes down, which we've seen a little bit, then the number of detected daily cases is going to go down as well even though the positivity is going up. And then we'll see a dispatch, like something not matching between the model and the reality, which is due to other artificial components that are not necessarily the reality. So it is really an extremely difficult and complex mathematical venue, I would say. I think everybody just gulped when we saw the numbers past 2000. Then they were saying, oh, well, you know, the, the numbers will go down slightly because, you know, it was the holiday and, and people weren't out doing testing. Exactly. We don't know because uh, the numbers comes with a delay. So Tuesday is always the lowest number of the week. It is still higher than the Tuesday that we had last week. So we're up compared to what we had before the big number. It is, and again, it depends like a lot of people, it seems that a lot of people got tested before Christmas to be safe and cautious, which is really great. Right after Christmas, testing went down, so we might see a little bit less daily cases due to that. But again, positivity is very high. We have to watch out. And now we have the outer island, and there is a real concern. Today was 25 cases on Molokai, and they're very limited with their hospitalization capability. Maui and Tom might say something about that. It's a main concern again. I know people tend to latch on those 2,000 numbers, but the real metric now is the hospitalization rather than the daily cases because Omicron behaves differently than Delta. is more transmissible, but it seems to be less severe. So the hospitalization is going to be really how to assess the severity of the situation. And we need a little bit more time because it has a lag compared to the daily cases. But we're concerned with the outer island right now. Thomas, maybe you want to talk about that. Uh, I know you flagged the concern for Maui and Big Island. Yes, as Dr. Sheba has indicated it's a very entangled experience here, and, and we're, we're seeing it it's so fast. As a neighbor island with a, a much smaller ICU, um, all, we were all kind of concerned here. When we had the Delta surge, the last surge, Oahu ICUs filled up first. The process is if a neighbor island ICU fills up, we tend to send our patients to uh, Honolulu. If Honolulu is not available, it's not like we're a, a contiguous state where we can just send somebody to the next state or, or something like that. So it's much more concerning. I think the fear is, with this spreading so fast, people might be wondering, is it too late? The numbers, you hope, will modify behavior. When you say something is too late, you know, I think that creates a sense of fatalism. In the case of COVID, 
it's never over till it's over, as we say. We believe that, the, as Professor Sheba has very clearly stated in the past, that although COVID surges exponentially, it can also decay and decrease very quickly as well. That we should also not discount or underestimate the power of a single action, whether it's choosing to reduce the size of your gatherings or move your gathering from indoors to outdoors, even getting that one extra test. All of that cumulatively all does add up. Same thing with the boosters, getting that extra booster shot will make a very big difference. COVID is different from hurricanes. Hurricanes, we don't usually think of as something that we humans can affect. But with COVID, both our individual actions and our actions by policymakers are very important. There's still time. There's still time as people think about their New Year's celebration to ring in 2022. Oh my gosh. Really thinking carefully about the size of your gatherings, whether you'll be masking. All of those small steps all accumulate and make a big difference. Places in other countries have managed to control their COVID through, in some in some cases, the important role of the public, the public's buy-in, the public's participation, and trust and agreement of civic duties, these public health measures, these individual measures of wearing a mask, washing your hands, um, keeping social distance. Again, it seems very trite, overused. We've heard it so many times, maybe we, we are almost numb to it now. But, you know, masking... Putting that mask over your nose really does make a difference. You've been in a large gathering, considering in your next gathering, keeping it smaller. All of these things cumulatively all all add up. So we're, we're all in this together. No one is safe until everyone's safe. Controlling COVID requires everyone's participation, support, trust. We have to trust each other uh, that we will uh, get through this together. And, and knowing that COVID has been so difficult for so many people, for their livelihoods, jobs, Tourism has taken a huge hit. All of those factors combined, the mental health impact, so many ways people have been impacted, but even more so to the extent that we can voluntarily agree to partake in these measures, the more that we will be protecting ourselves and our loved ones and our communities. All right. Well, thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, That was a conversation we had following the release this week of a report by the volunteer members of HIPAM, the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Work Group. You know, we did check with the health department about accessing timely information. We were told it does have data about race and age on its website, but did say that some of the information about hospitalizations and vaccinations um, needs to come from the hospitals directly. Multi-level marketing distributors claim to sell life-changing products. You've come to the right place if you want to change your body, change your health, and change your life. They're also selling something else. Misleading product claims, political disinformation, and extreme conspiracy theories. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dean Slider, author of Natural Meditation. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about why meditation is not about doing, but being. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. You know, you've probably heard someone say it, or you've probably said it to yourself, we're all getting COVID. It's understandable, given that we're nearly two years in the, in the pandemic. And we're seeing the Omicron variant fueling a surge in case counts. Some are labeling this change in attitude, COVID fatalism. We're doomed. It's the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. What's the reason behind this outlook? And what can you do to avoid getting trapped there? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with University of Hawaii at Manoa psychology professor Jack Burreal to find out. We're nearly two years into the pandemic, and with the surge in COVID cases and the spread of a second, more contagious variant, 
I've heard more than one person say, you know, what's the use? We're all going to get COVID. It seems to be a sharp contrast from how we were facing the pandemic just a year ago. That shift in attitude is being labeled by some as COVID fatalism. Can you share with our audience the idea behind fatalism? Yeah, the idea that eventually everyone will get some form of COVID-19. It's quite possible, but there is a lot of reasons why you would want to both prevent or, or eventually, I'll say, stall the chances of that happening. Of course, there's always chances that, that you know, the, the virus itself mutates in a way that new variants are less lethal, that they're less dangerous, and, and frankly, that they could spin themselves into extinction. That is possible and it's happened before. The other possibility, of course, is the reason you want to wait <laughs> to say, I will get COVID, is of course, you know, the, you know, hospital capacities, the, the workforce, like those are, you know, any time that you exceed the, the, the capacity of, of helping people in an emergency room or, or in inpatient beds, now all of a sudden, you know, everything else falls apart. Um, and, and the third is, of course, that, you know, there's younger people, under those under five, I have one of those, uh, that still can't be vaccinated. And because of that, they're more vulnerable because we do know that if you are vaccinated, that you will more likely have reduced symptomology and, and certainly less likely of going to the hospital or passing away. When, when you think about how we're all handling this psychologically, is it part of the normal process for processing a threat that we can't control? Is it, is it just part of the normal course of things for us to eventually get to the point where we see that we're we're isolated from each other. We're frustrated with the cost of the pandemic. We see our, our kids, you know, potentially falling behind in their education. We see all of these things that are un, out, of, out of our control. Is it the normal process of psychology to just to start to just throw up your hands and just say, hey, this is too much? Um, I, I, I think those are natural reactions, um, but I think there's a lot that uh, the government and we all can do to mitigate that. So one is you have a good plan. You build infrastructure, you build clear um, plans for mitigating the risk. Um, so I kind of always felt that, you know, kids shouldn't have been pulled out of school. They should have prioritized schools over, over businesses. You know, I think that there was a lot of missteps in how, what we prioritized through this time, but I think it's still going on. I, I, um, I'm, I'm fearful that people are saying that, you know, well, they, they do throw up their hands when instead, if, if we are always kind of looking for infrastructure changes, looking for having a, a good playbook for these uh, situations, because they're honestly, they're not, going, they're not going to go away. There's going to be other variants, as we've already seen, you know, as soon as you think that it's, it's done, it's, it's really not. And there's always, you know, other, other, you know, viruses that could easily uh, pop up. So there's no, there's not a good reason why you wouldn't invest in smart infrastructure changes that will mitigate risk. So when you, when you talk about having a plan, it seems like that have, like putting together a plan for how you're going to navigate, you know, your day-to-day or your month-to-month with all of the restrictions and all of the limitations that we have, it sounds like having a plan is key to being able to navigate through the things we can't control. Having a plan and, and something that we can control amidst the things that we can't control. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, the things that are dangerous and the way people end up throwing up their hands is that what ends up happening is you have this kind of chronic stressors, you're, you know, you're, you're tired, um, you know, you, you get this fatigue, you know, what some people call COVID fatigue, um, you know, then people to start to move away from smart behaviors. Um, but if you have a plan of infrastructure built around safe behaviors, then these are not stressful. So if you have a smart telework policy, one that enables people to work flexibly, uh, that enables people to work from home. Um, if you have, you know, outdoor uh, facilities for people to 
utilize. That's smart. We live in a place where we can have those sort of things, um, whether they don't exist, um, built fairly easy or, or opened. Um, those are things that can be done and always available to think of this as a, you know, a, a long-term investment and not a short-term, like we have to fight or get through this um, because that language is different. That language is, is problematic. You know, saying we're not, frankly, say that we're not a fight COVID is, is a problem. Saying we're not a fight cancer, I think is a problem. You know, because you're not, you're not fighting cancer or COVID. You're, you're, you're learning how to uh, navigate your situation um, in a way that is uh, for the best ends. And that's, that's a meaningful, different perspective than in literally purposely inducing stress. Um, and I, I know with, with a nationwide increase in drug overdoses and mental health issues, it's not just important that we protect our, our physical health by wearing masks or keeping our distance from people or getting vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to protect our mental health during this time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've done some work on that and, and it's, it's obvious. <laughs> I've actually, you know, had some conversations with people and it's like, yeah, we've, we published these papers that show that, you know, you know, increases in stress and poor mental health outcomes associated with increases in cases. And of course people go, duh, and they should, um, because it should be obvious, but we do need to attend to what really is that kind of chronic stress. Like the, the worst things for our health is ongoing chronic stress that we can't get rid of. Right. So that is, uh, in this case, you know, is the, you could say the fear, the pandemics, why I, I think the fear is kind of a problematic perspective. So when, when we think of something, we assess the situation, right? So we have to assess it and we've determined whether it's dangerous or problematic or scary. Then we, we devise a coping strategy around that. And then that coping strategy will hopefully mitigate our positive or, or oftentimes negative impacts of those sort of situations. But if we have, this is where I was getting back to that plan. We have a good plan. We assess things less dangerously and we have a coping mechanism that will route us in a way that is uh, healthy behaviors. Outside of that, what happens is you assess things. It's dangerous, it's scary. You invest in a coping mechanism that's maybe it's you know relying on substances, maybe it's engaging in behavior that's not healthy. Maybe it's saying, I'm not just gonna go outside, I'm just gonna play video games all day. Whatever it is, those are negative behaviors that then lead to these poor negative health outcomes. That's why we're walking all the way back to having smart infrastructure and smart policy planning is so critical. Thank you so much for your time, Jack. No problem. That was UH psychology professor Jack Burrell talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about this notion of COVID fatalism. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, presenting violinist Joshua Bell performing Barber's Violin Concerto, conducted by Joanne Folletta, 4 p.m. January 2nd at the Blaisdell Concert Hall. Tickets at myhso.org. It is now time for a reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us this morning. Hi, Anita. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you uh, were uh, uh, monitoring the news conference that Mayor Blangiardi had. Yeah, he had a news conference yesterday to talk about his approach to COVID. And part of the reason he decided to do that is that he's gotten some criticism from the State Department of Health um, that has really urged him to impose some restrictions. For example, they would like him to shut down nightclubs in advance of the you know, New Year's Eve holiday, where a lot of people are expected to be dancing and, and partying indoors. Um, as you saw today, we have really high COVID numbers, the highest we've had this pandemic, um, 3,484 new cases. And, um, you know, what the mayor has said is that he, he says that these cases are, you know, not as severe as other waves of COVID. And so he wants to wait until hospitalizations rise before he even considers 
you know, strengthening the, the restrictions that Honolulu has. And we did hear from the Healthcare Association, you know, their concern because a lot of our beds are already uh, filled and we don't have much wiggle room. So if these uh, hospitalizations do climb as the numbers climb, I mean, that's the concern. Yes, the head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, which um, represents you know, Hawaii's hospitals um, that have been really full lately, not just from COVID patients, but from other patients, um, said that he's really concerned about these large indoor gatherings, these high-risk scenarios, and that curtailing them sooner rather than later would be their preference and their guidance. Well, Mayor Blanchiardi, I know, did say that uh, his team, you know, was discussing, do we ban dancing, you know, for New Year's? Uh, But he did, you know, say that, uh, you know, the city has a hammer to come down on people, and he was hoping that, that, that there would be more of this soft lockdown I guess, idea that, that some of these businesses would just um, step up and just say, no, we're not going to do this. Yes, he was actually asking um, for places to suspend dancing um, rather than, um, you know, requiring it or banning anything, just because, you know, it's pretty known from the state's clusters that a lot of the um, COVID is spreading at nightclubs or at concerts and places where there's a lot of people um, all crowded together Um especially indoors. Um, but it was really interesting. Uh, during the, the press conference, he got a question about, you know, what can be done to prevent more people from getting hospitalized from COVID instead of waiting until, you know, the hospitalization for the searching member before acting. And the mayor responded, I don't think we can prevent these numbers. He said, we really can't get out in front of this disease. It is that virulent. Um, and so it, it was very striking to me because in previous iterations of surges, um, Honolulu has been, um, you know, more restrictive. And in this case, he's really taking a more hands-off approach. Right. We did have the tiers under Mayor Kirk Caldwell, uh, and we don't have anything like that in place. Uh, and, and then the different counties are doing things differently based on their numbers. Yes, definitely. For example, on Hawaii Island, they have a 10-person limit on indoor gatherings, although they have a much larger limit on outdoor gatherings, I think it might be 100 because they know that COVID is way more likely to spread indoors than outdoors. And, you know, Mayor Blanchiardi said he didn't see the logic behind limiting indoor gatherings to 10 people, even though that's something that the Department of Health would support and has previously supported. And so, you know, he, the mayor was really emphasizing the importance of personal responsibility and people getting boosted. And, you know, knowing that if people get boosted, they're more likely to experience Omicron like a cold versus like a severe illness that could send them to the hospital. Um, But there was definitely a a really interesting press conference where he was talking about how, um, you know, he doesn't want to close down businesses partly because there's not the same amount of public money to support people who are unemployed or businesses that go out of business now. And so he was saying, you know, this is just a very different virus than we had before. Yeah, well, that is true. Uh, there isn't going to be that type of bailout. But we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and watch uh, these numbers and, and try and, uh, I guess, hope that people's behavior is modified, uh, you know, with these uh, with these facts uh, out there. But thanks so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. Uh, read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions. Also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. Next time on The World, after a dramatic year, a photo editor had to pick the most powerful shot. I think it's the aerial picture that we have from the funeral pyres in Delhi. It was a a scene that nobody had photographed and seen really before. From controversial pictures of the pandemic to spectacular shots from nature and compelling human faces everywhere, a year in pictures on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
Looking back over the pandemic, the source of stress for so many people was the loss of jobs and the painful process of applying for unemployment benefits. The volume of people out of work and filing claims just overwhelmed the state labor department. If you recall, the unemployment rate went from the lowest in the country pre-pandemic to one of the highest at nearly 24%. The crisis threw the light on an antiquated computer system that was not designed to handle the volume of cases. We talked to Labor Director Ann Pereira-Estacchio about where things stand now. How are we doing? Well, we're doing much better than we were in the last um, year. We are seeing numbers drop. We know that the unemployment rate is down to 6% in, in November. Our workload has also dropped drastically. For December, you folks resume the face-to-face appointments. Yes, we have um, expanded our services to include in-person services for all divisions within the Department of Labor statewide. And it has been very smooth and very productive. We have been able to service the public in a very orderly manner. We um, are very pleasantly surprised with how smoothly the um, process has gone. And I know folks were worried there was going to be an onslaught of, uh, you know, crowds of people heading down to the office just because they were so frustrated and just wanted to deal with the person. <laughs> but right. um, what, what materialized? Did you see those large crowds or not? No, we did not. In fact, um, the numbers were very, very minimal. We were quite surprised. I think it's a testament to the tremendous job the staff has been carrying out in the last two years in regards to cleaning up claims, you know, as quickly as they possibly could following all the statutes and regulations set by, you know, the unemployment insurance um, program, as well as the really tremendous job that the appointment system has been able to put into place. The efficiency of that telephone appointment system has proven to be very solid. Um, We still continue to see claimants making telephone appointments um, in greater numbers than actually coming down in person to our offices. Well, that's probably a good thing now since we're seeing this um, second surge. Right, right. And even on December 1st when we opened the doors to in-person services, that was still the case. We had more um, telephone appointments being made than actual in-person appointments here. I mean, not appointments, they're just really walk-ins to the office. So what can you tell us as far as uh, a backlog? What kind of numbers are we looking at these days? Okay, so the backlog has been cleared up. We do still have um, adjudication issues that are still being addressed. You know, every single week when a claimant files what we call a weekly claim certification, um, hundreds of new pending um, issues get created, and we continue to work on those issues as we move throughout the throughout the claim process that um, each claimant has to go through for a 26-week benefit um, year. Can you give us any numbers as far as those cases? You know, I still don't have numbers, Catherine. We're still on the antiquated mainframe um, application. We are moving towards our modernized system, and so we still don't have those clear numbers. Okay, so where are we as far as uh, upgrading our systems? Uh, You know, what are the, the... benchmarks looking into 2022? Okay, so we're still moving very smoothly along with the modernized system. As planned, we plan to launch at the end of 2022. We've also expanded the modernization projects um, quite, quite largely. We've moved from just automating and modernizing our benefit system to moving towards an also a modernized automated employer application. We've also added um, these modules that will help us detect fraud and manage identity theft. We've also added a new what we call a localization system which will change the um, type of assistance that we're providing to our, our community in different languages. So we are adding two additional languages. So besides English and simplified Chinese, we are adding Tagalog and Japanese. Uh, is there anything you can share with us that uh, you may have learned from the regulators about any of those fraud cases? We are still working with the Office of Inspector General as well as the FBI on fraud cases. We're not allowed to divulge too much information 
on any specific case, but we are moving forward and states, um, not just Hawaii, but different states that these individuals are in, um, are working on making sure we stop these fraudsters and be able to hopefully collect, you know, what was paid out fraudulently. And I have to ask, because we saw the county become a target uh, by cyber criminals, what are we doing to prevent any uh, problems like that? Right. So it's twofold. You know, we have a private contractor who handles our upfront web applications. We've reached out to them. We've made sure that they have checked their systems to see that there are no vulnerabilities and that we were not using the same applications that the city was. We also are working hand-in-hand with the ETS, which is the state IT section and the CIO, to make sure that our mainframe is protected. And we hold a lot of um, PII on our mainframe, and we want to make sure that that's protected and not um, divulged to anyone trying to you know, penetrate our system. What's the situation with the operation that was stood up over at the convention center? Yes, so we have since, since um, mid-November, we have transitioned that center to 830 Punchbowl Street, where our main operations are. So we initially first moved the call center here, and then we also moved the adjudication team to 830 Punchbowl as well. So we're all housed here on Punchbowl Street um, to perform services, you know, for the public. We are 100% out of the convention center. You know, we could not have done it without them. You know, they were a great asset to us um, during this pandemic, and they provided us with a service that we greatly needed. We wanted to make sure that we could provide them back with, you know, their space so they could bring in um, additional venues to the convention center. So we were able to move out back into 830 Punchbowl Street. We were able to do that because um, in House Bill 200 last year with the ledge, there were some changes to Department of Labor and some of our operations, and we were able to open up space here. Yeah, well, kudos to uh, whoever thought of the idea of utilizing that space. I'm not sure if there were lawmakers or the administrators there uh, over at the at the facility, but, uh, yeah, that certainly uh, made for an easier time for everybody. Yes, most definitely. And gosh, so looking forward to 2022, um, what can you tell, uh, you know, the taxpayers out there, the, the right. folks that uh, that unfortunately, you know, maybe are still not working or who may have lost their jobs or who may lose their jobs just because our economy is a little shaky right now? Right. So we still have the call center that's open and um, they can reach out to that call center. We also now have on Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, in-person appointments on all islands. So if they need in-person services, please, we're here to service you, as well as we have our telephone appointments for every aspect of um, unemployment insurance, which is the general claims information, as well as adjudication, our PUA, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, to help each and every one of them, as well as employers. You know, we are here to service employers as well. They're the ones who pay the contributions so that we can pay out the benefits to claimants. So we are definitely here to service everyone. We're on a better um, footing right now. I am hoping that, you know, the economy continues to improve and that there are minimal shutdowns so we can continue to service in our community in this manner. As we reflect on the last year or two, you know, we know there are so many unsung heroes people working in the trenches on the front line. I don't know, is there anything, any story that you can share with us of somebody who may have gone uh, above and beyond the call of duty to help someone out? You know, I hate to honor just one person. I can tell you every single employee here at the Department of Labor has pitched in to service the community, not just unemployment insurance um, workers, but every employee in all of our divisions have um, volunteered or performed services in some manner to help the unemployment insurance division pay out over $6.5 billion into the Hawaii economy. And that's been incredible. It's taken extreme teamwork. It's taken dedication by the staff. And then, you know, we've had volunteers from state agencies as a whole in the very beginning. The legislators came out and helped. We had um, volunteers from the um, attorneys out in the community who's who helped with adjudication issues. It's been just 
incredible how the community as a whole, not just state workers, but everyone in the community, put a hand in helping everyone else in the community who was hurting to get through this pandemic. And it shows that the Aloha spirit still continues um, in here in Hawaii, and we're all here as one ohana to help everyone. And that was uh, State Labor Director Ann Pereira Estacchio talking with us about the snapshot on the jobless claims across the state as we close out 2021. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today we train our binoculars on a group of goose-sized seabirds and their acrobatic aerials over the sea. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to boobies in this week's Manu Minute. Boobies are a group of goose-sized tropical seabirds with long pointed bills, wings, and tails. There are three species of boobies that live in Hawaii, the red-footed, the brown, and the masked, and all are known by their Hawaiian name of ah, spelled okina a with a kahako over the a. Ah is a sound they often make when nesting, and it's also the shortest name for any bird in the world. Red-footed boobies in Hawaii are mostly white with bright red legs, while brown boobies are just that, a deep chocolatey brown. Masks are also white but have yellow bills and a jet black mask. All of them forge by making spectacular head-first aerial plunges into the ocean from heights of up to 30 meters to grab a variety of fish and squid. Nesting mainly occurs on the northwest Hawaiian Islands, as well as many offshore islets around the main Hawaiian Islands, but the red-footed also nest in fairly large numbers in shrubs and small trees at Kaneohe Marine Base on Oahu. Unlike many other birds, boobies often incubate their eggs by sitting on them with their big webbed feet. Masked and brown boobies nest on the ground, and they typically lay two eggs a few days apart. The first chick to hatch grows quickly, and in most years kills its sibling soon after it hatches. A very common practice in some groups of birds that's known as siblicide. It's generally thought they do this because there's not enough food for both chicks to survive. If they do successfully leave the nest, boobies can live to well over 20 years old. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. On the next Fresh Air, we continue our Holiday Week series with Saturday Night Live cast member Cecily Strong, who starred in this year's series Schmigadoon, a loving parody of musicals like Carousel, Oklahoma, The Sound of Music, and Brigadoon. We'll also hear my interview with Cinco Paul, Schmigadoon's co-creator and songwriter. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. The timing of this COVID surge has some rethinking New Year celebration plans. Keep it small, keep it uh, safe, uh, keep it outdoors if you can. And with Waikiki Hotel room bookings up this season, the Waikiki Improvement Association decided at the 11th hour to go ahead with the New Year's fireworks show. As you recall, it went dark last year. And this organized event will be set off from a barge off Waikiki. You can watch safely from your homes if you have a view or from a hotel balcony or lanai. And this year, Hawaii Public Radio will be simulcasting the music on HPR1. The other day, we talked to Thomas Likos, the producer behind this year's events, about how to safely put on a show during this latest surge and the fine line with responsible viewing, as it seems this pandemic is not done with us. They asked us to put this off until December 1st before you know, Waikiki Improvement Association could make a decision about you know whether we could have fireworks. Previously, the fire department wasn't really friendly towards you know, gatherings for fireworks, so they weren't approving permits. So 
Rick Agate of Waikiki Improvement finally called me uh, just around Thanksgiving and said, we want to do it. We've been frantically trying to get everything in order to get the show off the boat at midnight on New Year's Eve. So tell us about the show then. Is it going to be pretty much you know what we've seen in the past, or you have to scale it down, or what? We didn't scale it down at all. We're, we're, it's just going to be the same. It's going to be about uh, 13 minutes long. Actually, we've increased the uh, number of 8-inch shells. We're going to have bigger shells. The show is a little bigger than we've done in the past. There is a concern about, you know, crowds. They really don't want people congregating, uh, you know, because of COVID and, and and everything. But, I mean, the hotel rooms are, are booked in Waikiki. Yes, and so we're going to be about 2,000 feet off the beach in Waikiki. And we set this up so that the entire beach from Hilton to, you know, the Royal Hawaiian, uh, you know, everyone along there can see this show. So people don't have to gather in large groups. It's great. Sit on the beach, bring your radio along so you can listen to the uh, coordinated music and um, um, or cell phone, whatever, and um, crowds can spread out. And then from the hotel rooms, like you say, people can watch it from the hotel room. So hopefully there won't be large gatherings to watch the display. Okay, and then now putting something like this together, you folks already had the fireworks from last year that you, so you didn't have to worry about bringing more in? We bring in the fireworks generally once a year, so we have you know a large amount of storage. But the thing was, uh, we didn't pull a show for last year, so and the decision was made so late. So I was just at the magazine yesterday, and we're uh, beginning to put the show together. So it takes us about three days to you know, get all the shells and get the numbers on them and get them set up because it's all computer fired. So Everything has to be specifically selected to go off at a certain time. And what's it been like, I guess, across the country in other venues, you know, when it comes to fireworks and crowds? I think New Year's Eve has come back. I know Fireworks by Gucci is doing uh, the rooftops in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is jumping. Well, Times Square, they're talking about reducing the people, but they will still do that whole, you know, the fireworks and the ball drop at um, Times Square. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see. Usually I record, you know, that uh, TV show that shows all the fireworks around the world, and it'd be interesting to see. I wonder if uh, Australia is doing as big a show as they usually do. Yeah, because we've all had to adjust during COVID. Yes, and, you know, that some of the adjustments getting uh, drivers to uh, transport the hazardous material, you know, the fireworks to the pier. We're, we're flying um, guys in from New York. So, so make sure you stop and get your COVID test at the airport before you come out. So it's things like that, those little rubs that have made it very complicated this year. And then just as far as uh, being, uh, you know, on the barge or on the boats, trying to put the show together, any other complications due to COVID? You know, our crew in Hawaii, you know, everybody is pretty safe and pretty careful about taking care of this COVID thing. So, you know, I'm pretty satisfied that my crew is about as COVID-free as you can be, you know, tested and boosted and everything. So that would be a nightmare to suddenly have people come up positive. But aside from that, we're just down at the pier, you know, getting everything ready, building the show and uh, loading the mortars and, and getting all set for a big display and midnight. You know, I imagine people are just COVID-weary and things relaxed a bit at the beginning of the month. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've got this surge right now. But, you know, I, I think people are, are just hoping that there be some sense of normalcy, uh, you know, as we bring in this new year and, and hoping that uh, that we'll be able to, you know, bounce back our economic recovery and, and just our, 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 our physical health and our mental health. <laughs> we want to rebound. Well, I, th I think you're right, and I think everyone everyone has been extremely helpful to me. The fire department has gone out of their way. The FAA, everyone is saying, you know, what can we do to help you make this happen? Because we haven't had fireworks, you know, in Waikiki for a couple of years. We need to bring a little bit, little bit of life back into uh, the crowd in in Waikiki, so everyone can sit back and go, you know, there's some things that still happen every year. So. We'll do the best we can. All right, but make sure that uh, folks are physically distanced and wearing their masks or doing what they need to do just to protect themselves. Your help 
is greatly appreciated in putting that message out. That, um, you know, people make sure they have their mask on and make sure they're boosted before they show up at the beach to watch the fireworks. All right. We're glad that uh, you can put this on. I know we get, we're get we getting complaints from people about the illegals that have been going on for the past month or so, and, and the people are tired of that. I just came out to the backyard to take your call, and there, there's some fireworks going off down the street. You know, I know everyone is annoyed. When we do fireworks shows, we try to let everybody know where they are, when they're going off, so that people can prepare their children and dogs and whatever. And, but this this random stuff that seemed to start before Thanksgiving and it, it's gone on for weeks is is annoying us all. Yeah, and well, me especially. <laughs> and we want to make sure that uh, everybody's safe and and uh, and doesn't get hurt. So uh, basically, go to the organized shows and uh, and and enjoy the enjoy the fireworks there. Yeah, and and if these people, you know, if they insist on doing these illegal. Sh- just need to be careful. They need not to be sitting in a beach chair next to where they're shooting these things off. Right. Like, yeah. Got to be um, safe. We got to have a, yeah. a safe and, ha- and healthy New Year. <laughs> safe yeah. and happy we, New we Year. Need, we need to get through this. We need to get through 2022 with no one getting hurt and and um, putting this COVID behind us. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and and we'll look forward to the show. Yes, the music will be playing. It's a it's a good selection, a mix of local and um, classic uh, New Year's Eve music. So you know we really appreciate uh, HPR for putting this on. And that was Thomas Lekos, who we talked to earlier in the week. He produces the show for Gucci Fireworks. This year, you'll be able to hear the music at the strike of midnight here on HPR One. Make sure you download the mobile app if you're not near a radio. And that's it for us up tomorrow. Well, we're taking the holiday, but we do have national programming. Look forward to Selected Shorts, Holiday Hurdles with David Sedaris. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, my wish for everybody is to have a safe New Year's. Stay positive, test negative. Join us again on The Conversation in 2022.